Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Give the people what they want. Your weekly movement news roundup. Well, you're with Give the People What They Want coming to you every week from People's Dispatch. That's peoplesdispatch.org. Editors Prashant and Zoe. Uh, nice to be back with you again. Also brought to you by Globetrotter. That's me, Vijay. Um, We're so happy to be with you every Friday. Every Friday, today is the 3rd of June. Um, yesterday, Thursday, 2nd of June. Well, I didn't want to be rude, but um, U.S. President Joe Biden and NATO Chief Jens Stoltenberg had a meeting. I didn't want to be rude because I saw the photo opportunity that they had together, and it looked rather um, miserable to think that these two men have the fate of their ha- of the world in their hands. But at any rate, that's what, what it looks like. Um, the meeting was interesting, friends, because it's now... Uh, pretty clear that the uh, conflict in Ukraine has, in a sense, begun to clarify itself. It's clear, for instance, that um, despite what some media was saying about the Russian um, advance being stalled and so on, it seems pretty clear now that uh, certain war aims have been met for the Russians. In other words, they've pretty much, uh, except for a few uh, skirmishes here and there, been able to um, advanced the Russian frontier to include Donetsk and Lugansk, the Donbas region. Uh, that is pretty clear. Secondary, secondly, the fall of Mariupol uh, has enabled the Russians to build a land bridge all the way to Crimea. Seems to me those are the two principal territorial objectives of this war. Um, as a consequence of this, the Russians have been able to remove a number of the uh, right-wing paramilitary neo-Nazi type formations out of this part of Ukraine. Um, now, was there really going to be a Russian project of overthrowing the government government of Mr. Zelensky and establishing a pro-Russian government? Unlikely, actually, that that can ever be accomplished now, uh, largely for um, perhaps three reasons. First, there's a lot of arms being delivered to the government in Kiev. So the Ukrainian military is now well-armed to actually defend um, central and western Ukraine from a Russian advance. So that seems quite unlikely. These arms are going to include various kinds of uh, medium and almost most likely long-range missiles of one kind or the other. This raised a controversy this week because Vladimir Putin of Russia threatened the United States not to deliver Uh, long-range missiles to the Ukrainians saying that if you deliver long-range missiles, they could be used to attack targets inside territorial Russia. Of course, that now means Donetsk and Lugansk because these have been um, essentially brought into the Russian territory. Will those territorial gains be allowed? Will they be pushed back against? It's not clear yet. We'll have to see. But the principal reason is, as I said, the three reasons. One is Heavily arming of the Ukrainian military makes it relatively impossible that um, the Russian military coming down from Belarus is going to be able to make gains against Kiev, Kharkiv, and so on. And that's not, I think, on the table anymore. Secondly, these um, long-range missiles is going to give the Ukrainian government a kind of deterrent against a further escalation, territorial escalation by Russia. So I think there there's a stalemate, it looks like. And thirdly, 
Jens Stoltenberg, head of NATO, speaking to um, speaking to Joe Biden, speaking with Joe Biden, told the media that the uh, war is going to go on for a long time and that Western support for the Ukrainian government is guaranteed. That means that there will be a lot of diplomatic pressure um, uh, against you know, uh, the uh, ability of the Russians to come in and, and conduct any kind of regime change. The West has basically drawn a line under it and said, we will not allow it. So that has to be kept in place. Now, it's also interesting, and we'll come back to this at the end of the show. It's also interesting, question of food price inflation has gone up. There is a narrative being driven by Biden. Stoltenberg repeated it, which is that one way to bring down the price of grain is for the war to end in Ukraine. That is true. Um, although, again, the you know, it, it takes a lot of people to tango to bring a war down from where it is now. And it's unlikely that this is a decision that Moscow can make alone. Let's see. We're, we're all, in a sense, uh, quite concerned about the fact that it is now being said that this conflict could go on for a very long time. I hope that's not the case, speaking um, in my own capacity. Mr. Biden, of course, had been on a big tour of Asia. Um, we'd already talked about that, trying to strengthen the Quad. Come back to that again in the end of the show. Um, but now he's preparing, Zoe, for a big summit taking place in Los Angeles. The Summit of the Americas with Joe Biden as the host. What's happening in Los Angeles where you are now? Well, Joe Biden is preparing for the summit. Um, although rumors have emerged... I don't know, you know, what, how true they are. Of course, they're rumors. Whether he will even show up at all, because the summit has been so controversial and such a seemingly political failure even before it began. But that being said, um, the preparations are underway. Um, there's a lot of banners going up this week across town. Um, in a white, in a press conference this week with the uh, press secretary. There was a question asked by a journalist, um, we're a week away from the Summit of the Americas and the invitations haven't even gone out. Uh, can you comment to this? And the press secretary said, uh, for us, a week is a lifetime. <laughs> interesting, um, interesting. I guess a week is a lifetime for them. No need to send out invitations. We, of course, know that this is related to the very, very contentious um, debate over whether Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba will be invited to this summit uh, a week ago, um, the a White House administrator already said definitively Venezuela and Nicaragua will not be invited, adding that they do not recognize Venezuela's government as a sovereign government of Nicolas Maduro. And on Cuba, they have not commented yet. They have not made uh, this. They really haven't pronounced about this. And that's because a lot of the governments um, across the region are saying that they won't go to the summit if Cuba is not invited. We've talked about this on the show before, um, but it continues. It's, it's, it's interesting that we're only days away from the start of the summit and it still is on the table. They still have not been able to really resolve or take a position on uh, the U.S. on Cuba. Um, we did see some moves towards warming relationships, of course, lifting some of the Trump era sanctions on Cuba, um, engaging uh, with Venezuela and buying their oil. But we see that the political stance on Venezuela has not changed. We haven't seen clarity on what Biden's stance is going to be on Cuba. 
All that being said, this summit is going to happen. It's seeming like it's not going to be anything really to write home about for all these heads of state. Many aren't even sending in the end, not even because of the political boycott, but it just doesn't, it's not a high stakes place. They're sending foreign ministers, they're sending other members of their cabinet because really the space of regional integra integration, cooperation is not the Summit of the Americas. The Summit of the Americas is a flashy show by Joe Biden to, to you know, put uh, U.S. democracy on display. And in this city, that's, that's quite a tall order given the fact that it's one of the most unequal cities in the country. There's one of the highest, the biggest homeless populations in the entire country is in Los Angeles. So really it'll be interesting to see what kind of democracy and what kind of you know economic example they're trying to display. But on the other side of town, or maybe just a block down, as we've spoken about, the People's Summit for Democracy is going to be taking place. Um, this summit, as we've spoken about, is going to be a place where all the voices of the Americas are going to be represented. And it seems that the U.S. government and Joe Biden really don't want this summit to have its voice heard to really represent this diversity because they've been stalling on granting a permit for this, um, for this summit to be able to march in the streets towards the Summit of the Americas. Um, they filed a permit in February, and it's been over 95 days, and they still have not responded to this. So this is another example of the democracy that Joe Biden wants to, to promote. Um, you know, organizers, community organizers, social movements can't even carry out a mobilization in a major city where there's, you know, a big meeting taking place. So this is an interesting case to follow. We'll be on the ground as People's Dispatch covering the People's Summit for Democracy. You can follow the People's Summit at People at, at People's Summit 22. You can follow People's Dispatch. We'll be giving you all the updates, speaking to some of the amazing organizers who are going to be in Los Angeles for this summit. Um, and you can follow online on YouTube. So definitely check it out. We'll be there. We'll be giving you the most important updates. The most important updates, that's what you also come to give the people what they want uh, to get. Well, um, Prashant, you know, uh, Turkish president, president, uh, yes, Turkish president, although sometimes called Sultan, um, Mr. Erdogan has decided that they don't like to be called Turkey anymore because, well, they don't want to be mistaken for that infernal bird of the Americas. So the country has officially changed its name. The United Nations has ratified the change. Turkey is the new way we're going to say the country's name, Turkey. You're taking us now to see new revelations about Turkey and Syria. Uh, I just wanted to tell people that in case they're wondering what the hell I'm talking about. Turkey, Turkey, Turkey. Get used to it, people. That's how you have to say the name. So, Prashant, Turkey and Syria. Does leave a problem with uh, adjectives? Do you say Turkian president, Turkish president? Very difficult to be honest. But yes, the matter of concern is uh, more than just a name because what we've seen in the past few weeks is Erdogan has sort of ramped up preparations to launch yet another incursion, armed incursion, an invasion of Syria uh, into regions which are controlled by Kurdish forces. And now this whereby this might be the fourth such operation since 2016, the last one. In 2019, of course, I believe saw about uh, 700 civilians killed, 300,000 people getting displaced. Very uh, cynical uh, attempt by Erdogan here uh, to sort of uh, be, try to deal with some of the internal issues he's facing right now 
by organizing, you know, by conducting yet another invasion into these regions. There was a ceasefire in 2019 with uh, with Russia. Uh, you know, certain uh, ground rules were set. Erdogan claiming, of course, that Turkish forces are being uh, attacked in that region, which is, uh, you know, which is controlled by the Kurdish forces, the YPG, if I'm not mistaken. And he said that that is the reason for this fresh uh, incursion. He's given all the usual excuses that people give in, this, in such situations. But the fact remains that what is most likely the reason for this fresh attack is, is going to be twofold. One, it's yet another assault on, uh, you know, the Kurdish armed sections. I mean, whatever you say about their politics, that's an entirely different story. But undoubtedly, this will cause fresh casualties. But more importantly, it looks like a cynical land grab attempt to build, uh, you know, to build maybe housing so that Turkey can send it, send refugees back there. And this comes out of the fact that there is a very dangerous political environment right now that is in Turkey, in Turkey that is created on the issue of the refugees. The general right-wing direction that politics has taken under someone like Erdogan has meant that there is uh, you know, a lot of xenophobia against refugees, a lot of discrimination and hatred. And Erdogan sort of wants to, seems to want to resolve this problem by, say, pushing the refugees back. And for that reason, he seems to prefer want to take over uh, fresh land and then build housing and maybe send around the reports say about 1 million or 3.5 million refugees uh, who are uh, currently in Turkey right now. And of course, then there's the even more cynical but common uh, method, which is that there's an election coming next year. Erdogan dealing with a massive economic crisis. Inflation, I believe, is at 70% or something like that. And at this point of time, what works better than a war? So there's definitely that angle as well. The fact that, uh, you know, Russia is right now uh, already in a conflict. The United States does need Turkey's approval for uh, Finland and Sweden to join NATO. And Erdogan has been a stumbling block on that as well. So all using all this, Erdogan seeing this as an opportunity to gain some narrow political uh, gains and causing through causing such suffering. I think a larger point to remember here in this context is that it you know it's important to remember the war in Syria, which people uh, you know often nowadays not so much talked talked about. It's important to remember the very cynical role played by Turkey and the United States at that point of time, especially Turkey, who's you know which provided support to some of the most extremist elements, which continue to operate in parts of Syria to this day, and uh, you know caused untold violence, destroyed a country. The, the Syria is still not uh, recovered at all from uh, that war we know the role of the united states the role it played you know it it had it so its troops still there to some extent a very small contingent but its troops still there this imperialist war you know every couple of years is cynically used uh, and escalated further by uh, leaders like erdogan again and it's very dangerous shelling has already of course started uh, you know we don't know when an exact operation might take place but the degree of impunity is clear from the fact that Erdogan has been talking about it for weeks now. And, you know, nobody's really in a position to do anything about it. He's openly said that we are going to go, we are going to take over this land. And uh, he seems to have a bit, of a, a bit of a blank check here. And this is really kind of indicative of the destruction in the region uh, that uh, these policies have caused. So it's fingers crossed for the next couple of weeks, especially for people in these regions of Syria. It's a very serious story because that particular region of Syria, of Turkey, has seen a lot of instability ever since. I mean, now, what are we talking about? We're talking about a decade of that war plus, decade plus of that war. Terrible, terrible situation. Glad that you're following it. 
Um, you're listening to Give the People What They Want, brought to you every week from People's Dispatch. That's peoplesdispatch.org. Go there to read about the story from Turkey and Syria. Go there to read about the People's Summit. Um, it'll be your best reference on the People's Summit that you're going to get. And we're brought to you by Globetrotter. Um, coming to you now in 61 countries in over um, 260 periodicals. Well, what do I say, Zoe? Below where you are, there will be an election on the 19th of June um, in one of the most difficult countries for uh, progressive forces to advance, that's Colombia. Give us the update now. Opinion polls, I know, are not looking good for the left, but what what are you seeing? Well, on Sunday, the first round of presidential elections were held in Colombia. And this was a very interesting and exciting day for the left. Um, Petro and uh, Francia Marquez, who were running on the historical pact ticket, won, uh, won these first round of elections. They managed to get uh, over 40%. The second runner-up was a bit of a surprise, Rodolfo Hernandez, who's a very strong anti-corruption businessman who has this kind of outsider, uh, political outsider kind of platform, even though he was the mayor of Bucaramanga for, for the last uh, period. Um, however, it is not as easy as it looks, even though Petro and uh, Francia Marquez got over 40% in this first round. Of course, this means they have to go to a second round, as you mentioned, and going into that second round is not so easy. Um, it is going to be a very uphill battle for them to face off um, the right. Um, the right in Colombia has this long history of uniting together to squash any sort of progressive expression. Um, there were several center and right candidates in this first round. Federico uh, Gutierrez was the favorite of the far right of the Uribistas. Um, he was really carrying on this legacy of Ivan Duque. He was expected to take the second spot. He did not. But him and other candidates um, in the coming days, it is likely that they will you know, express their, their support behind Rolfo Hernandez. We'll see a kind of coming together of these different candidates, of these different right candidates. Um, and... But, sorry. Um, and this is this is kind of the scene. Um, Colombia, once again, will have this face-off. In uh, 2018, Petro had a similar challenge. Um, he was facing off against Ivan Duque in the second round. Um, and he was unable to take these elections. Uh, but people have more hope this time around because there is way more momentum behind Petro's campaign they were able to get 8 million votes in this first round, um, a very strong showing. It would indicate that their their vote share in the second round could increase and they could become victorious. So people are watching warily. There's also a lot of incidents of voter uh, suppression, uh, fraud that was happening on election day. So uh, it's definitely something to watch out for, to keep following Colombia know that the incidents of political violence also greatly increase um, around election time. There's already been a lot of different assassinations that have taken place. Um, and so we, we must continue watching. 
a pretty tough situation in a country where there's been a history of murder, assassination of social movement leaders and so on. Um, indeed, uh, the story will be uh, with us and we'll be closely watching till June 19th when the next round will be held. Um, we're going to spend the rest of the show really on food price inflation, Prashant, living standards going up. I know that in Britain, they are celebrating the platinum jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. Of course, it's also the platinum jubilee of the Mama Rebellion in Kenya. Uh, no such celebration of that in the British Isles. Somebody told me the other day, well, British imperialism is over. And I said, you better check with the people in the northern counties of Ireland. Zoe has just done a very good interview for People's Dispatch with a young politician from Sinn Féin. Doesn't seem to be the case that um, old British colonialism is is has finished. That dog has its has has some more strength. Um, Prashant, there is on the other hand a standard of living crisis in Britain. Um, tell us about that. Right, Vijay. So uh, it's actually uh, the United Kingdom is uh, one uh, example, maybe of a crisis which is uh, you know pervading throughout Europe, pervading throughout the world. Food prices, of course, being a key factor. The Britain is an interesting example also because what we've seen is that a lot of these, a lot of the crisis people are facing is primarily the result of extremely flawed government policies over the decades. Now, the, num the numbers are pretty, you know, damning, so to speak. If you look at uh, inflation itself, it's uh, it's around nine percent, I think, which is the highest in about the 35 to 40 years which is quite a big thing. The government's target was some 2%. So keeping that in mind, that's quite uh, that's quite quite much. And the, one of some of the more recent announcements have to do with energy prices and the energy cap, which is the maximum energy, you know, uh, providers can charge customers is expected to be expected to increase by around 800 pounds in October. This follows another historic increase in April itself. And the estimates say that I think some close to 12 million households may be experiencing fuel poverty where they're struggling to you know, meet basic energy needs of their households, which itself is, uh, is really, you know, really shows how bad the sign is. There are record queues, I believe, at food banks. The estimates say that it's a 14% increase from previous year. Rents are uh, definitely increasing. Food prices are increasing. And like you only pointed out, the government, uh, you know, governments in many parts, especially in Europe, are very easily and uh, happily blaming everything on the war in Ukraine, sort of trying to paint, paint Russia as a bogeyman, saying they're responsible for all this. But the fact clearly remains that this uh, you know, is, very, is, is a result of decades of policy of welfare being cut of massive austerity at all levels that has actually led to this kind of a uh, cost of living crisis. I mean, we recently did a video, Roger McKenzie, journalist with Morningstar, pointing out that the issue was not really the issue. That the two main axes of the solution would be nationalizing the energy sector and to making, you know, pushing for a policy of increasing wages for the people, for working class people, which is really at the heart of a lot of these issues and which is the one step that governments are completely unwilling to take because all of their measures seem to be somehow to try to reduce the amount of money that can go into the hands of the working class. So really uh, some kind of a perfect storm as far as the United Kingdom is concerned, as far as many other countries in Europe are concerned. And all of this stems from, uh, like I said, decades of these austerity policies 
kind of insensitivity we see we talked we talked about the diamond jubilee celebrations the fact that people are struggling without food the fact that people cannot afford to heat their homes the fact that you know uh, you know so many basic essentials are right now so difficult to access and then on the one hand you have uh, the diamond the platinum jubilee of course and secondly you have say all the scandals about whether boris johnson was partying or not uh, and that seems to be you know the 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 biggest issue right now the government sort of trying to it did announce a relief package there was speculation that it was trying to blunt the impact of some of the more damaging revelations against the government so you have a government which seems completely cut off from the needs of the people in the coming months we're probably going to see the situation worsen as winter approaches across europe especially you know they in some sense shot they shot themselves with their own foot with the kind of sanctions they've imposed as well so really governments having no answer to the demands of the people unions organizations protesting on the streets but uh, the you know the agenda is very clear for them it they, the demand is for a total revamp in terms of how society is structured well that's the story in the uk um the global numbers are pretty stunning uh, global inflation first highest in decades about 8% 8.7% depends what you look at at the same time gdp is collapsed um gdp uh, last i looked which is now seconds ago is sitting at around just about over um 2% near 3% that gap yawning gap between high inflation and low growth is what's called stagflation even the financial times has now said we're in a situation of global stagflation well this is creating enormous problems of hunger around the world i recently read a very interesting paper with a very dull title produced by the world bank produced by um the world trade organization the oecd and the international monetary fund these are the most important players friends in the multilateral um trade and development world the paper was called subsidies trade and international cooperation now i'm not expecting you to go run out and read it um but the evidence in it is interesting what this paper suggested is that the subsidies regime that exists in the world favors developed countries the richer countries but this is the imf the oecd which is the block of the richer countries the world bank and the who saying that the current subsidy regime favors not the poorer countries that could use a little bit of help but it favors the richer countries um now the reason i'm saying this is because at the wto which is going to have a very important ministerial meeting this month um 60 countries uh, including india which actually played quite a leading role in this have proposed a new method to calculate subsidies now last year piyush goyal who's the indian representative at the wto um made the point that the subsidy regime benefits the developed countries which is exactly now what the evidence has suggested from these multilateral bodies well india has been calling for a revision of the formula for a long time in the wto uh, it's a member of the so called g33 uh, the african group the afro caribbean and pacific group and so on but the g33 is important it includes major developing countries china pakistan egypt indonesia south africa and so on they have now come they have 59 of them have joined india essentially um to put uh, on the table the revision 
of the subsidies regime and how inflation is calculated. You might be surprised to know that the reference price used by the WTO to calculate inflation is based on 1986-88 prices. Um, they haven't updated their uh, price reference sheet in a long time. So that's something that these governments are complaining about. But really the issue here is to uh, give greater allowance for countries to uh, utilize their food stocks and to build up public food stocks uh, for what is known as food security. Um, India is one of the world's largest providers of food uh, delivery. It has to do a lot with the endemic poverty in the country. So the public distribution system, PDS, is one of the largest in the world. China has a comparable population, but it doesn't actually have such a vast PDS system. And the reason is that China has actually abolished poverty. Um, so you don't need to be feeding people if you've abolished poverty, if people have the means to buy food. India, they don't have the means. So PDS is a lifeline in India. Because of the formula at the WTO, um, you know, you can face legal sanction for, um, for so-called uh, hoarding your food grain uh, in order to supply your own population. You can face legal sanction based on the WTO rules. Well, there the G33 is approaching the ministerial meeting um, this month to ask for a revision of the formula, uh, in essentially to make the claim, and I think this is important, that the subsidy regime um, is essentially benefits the developing uh, the developed countries and not the developing countries. Um, you see, there is what's known as a peace clause in the WTO uh, charter, which allows and protects countries from legal dispute um, if the subsidies breach the minimal level. You know, it's, it's basically 10% of the total value of production of the product. Well, I mean, that peace clause is a little bit of a defense, but it's not enough. Um, you know, th there's a lot of pressure on governments, uh, as we saw in the Bali meeting in 2013, a lot of pressure on governments uh, against so-called trade distortion means that if you if you come in there and you try to protect your food security uh, and don't export your grain, you can be charged with distorting trade. This comes with a lot of sanctions and so on. Um, so uh, we've got to keep an eye on this because you know, it's one thing to complain about the question of inflation and say price rise has gone up. Here are 15, 60 countries coming to the WTO saying we have a solution and a short-term solution to help us feed our populations. Um, let's see how the global north reacts to this. Summit for democracy, not always democracy when it comes to people's ability to eat. You've been listening to give the people what they want. We know what they want is food. Uh, they want fuel prices to come down. Zoe and Prashant from People's Dispatch. I'm Vijay from Globetrotter. See you next week. We shall overcome. We shall overcome.